we just heard uh, John 2, 1 through 11. Jesus and his disciples have just rolled up to a wedding, and the caterers have sorely miscalculated how much people would drink. Uh, apparently, they thought it was a Baptist gathering. Turns out it was an Anglican gathering. Uh, Mary steps in to prevent a bridezilla moment, and Jesus seems to regret his mom asking him. Not only uh, did it not seem timely for him to begin his ministry and movement to the cross, Jesus had the good sense to know that at someone else's wedding is not the time to announce your big news. Congratulations to the bride and groom. By the way, I'm the savior of the world. So Jesus pushes back. Woman, why do you involve me? A memory verse, which Scott Hansen has told me is best not to quote in one's marriage. Nevertheless, despite Jesus's resistance, Mary insists. And Jesus seems to embrace the request wholeheartedly with a big go, go big or go home kind of attitude. So if I'm going to do this, let, let's make it huge. And so he provides 120 to 180 gallons of wine. So if you do the calculations, that's about 600 to 800, 900 bottles of our wine today. And this is no box wine. This is no two buck chuck. This is that $50 a bottle of wine at Costco that you pass by every time wishing you could buy, but never willing to pull the trigger. And so when it's given to the master of the banquet, he's confused as to why they've said the best to now. All the guests are drunk. Literally, that's what the word means in the Greek. The NIV softens it, had too much to drink. But in the Greek, it literally means all the guests are drunk. And perhaps that's why Jesus went ahead with a miracle. After all, no one would really notice except the disciples do. They see his glory and they believe. So what are we going to do with this text? We could do what my students tend to do with, with scripture passages. They moralize it, something I try to train them out of doing. We could look at verse 5 and say, Mary is recorded given instruction only once in all of scripture. Do whatever he tells you. We could look at verse 7 and say that hard labor is required of us to partner in the Lord's work. Filling six 30-gallon jugs with water is a lot of work. 30 gallons of water is 250 pounds. Partnering the Lord's work is hard and difficult. We can look at verse 10 and say that Jesus socializes with even blesses those who are drunk. We could moralize the text. We could doxologize the text. Verse 6, the abundant provision of God. Verse 10, the quality of the kingdom is beyond what we could even possibly conceive. We could theologize the text, verse 6 and 10. In the Old Testament, the abundance of wine, milk, and oil were signs that the kingdom of God has come. In fact, Jesus is doing that. The kingdom is there. Verses 6 through 10, the ceremonial washing of the Old Testament is replaced by the wine of the new. There's much we could do with the text. We could also just simply do what John tells us to do with the text. The end of his book John 20, verses 30 through 31, John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we don't just stop reading the Gospel of John once we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We look more deeply at Christ and into his person. So what I'd like for us to do Let's take a, a look just at verse 11, and we're going to launch off from there. That Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples 
believed in him. We use the word glory a lot. We throw it around and often don't really know what it means. If you were my students uh, at an intervarsity gathering right now, I'd have you turn to your neighbor and each share a quick definition of what you think glory means. And then we try to write on a dry erase board and come up with a definition of glory. My guess is we would all have various understandings of what the word means. In the New Testament, written in Greek, the word glory is doxa, and it means praise or honor. We use it in doxology. Logos, a word, doxa, a word of praise. When we sing the doxology, we're singing a word of praise. Uh, The Greek and New Testament understanding of doxa or glory, however, is rooted in an understanding of the Hebrew word for glory the Old Testament concept. And the Hebrew word is a word you probably know, but perhaps don't know that you know. It is the word kabod, K-A-B-O-D. And it means weighty or heavy. It means that God in his glory is a very serious, real, true thing. Now, you know this word, if you're familiar with Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The Headless Horseman, one of the lead characters, his name is Ichabod. Ich meaning a negation of Kabad. He is Ichabod Crane, no glory crane. He's the lightweight, frail, scrawny, easily feared schoolmaster. Ichabod. So Kabad means the weightiness of importance. It is the glory. And while it means that, the experience of Kabad was that of radiance, fire, or light. God himself could not be seen, but his radiance could be seen. His kabod is then the visible manifestation of his power. Famously, Moses requests, even demands, in Exodus 33, 18, to see God's glory. He says, now show me your glory. Chapter before, Moses has come down from Mount Sinai, and he's carrying the the two tablets of the the covenant. And when he gets down off the mountain, there is the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And in his anger, Moses throws down the tablets, and they break. And he's angry at the Israelites, and he's angry at God. And God says, lead these people. Moses says, I'm not going to lead these people unless your presence goes with us. And God says, all right, my presence will go with you. Seemingly, having won some kind of battle with God, Moses then says in verse 18, now show me your glory. Almost a demand. Verses 19 and 20, God replies, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. And he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covers Moses' face and God walks in front of him. And when he's passed and his back is to Moses God declares his goodness, and for the next 40 days and nights, Moses stays up on Mount Sinai, rewriting the tablets he had broken. And so we get to our Old Testament reading, and we hear that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, now the second time with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, 
and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. There was a grave problem with Moses veiling his face. The veil prevented the Israelites from seeing that the radiance of his face faded. Moses' face actually stopped radiating the glory of God. The radiance, the ministry, the glory of Moses was not permanent. But the Israelites thought it was because they couldn't see that it was a fading ministry, a diminishing glory. So they fell into believing that the law of Moses was the greatest glory God had to offer. What they were actually given by Moses was not a radiant, glorious, life-giving ministry, but rather, and I quote 2 Corinthians 3.7, it was the ministry that brought death. In 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, Paul contrasts the ministry of Moses and his glory with the ministry of the gospel, the glory of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 7 and 8, Paul tells us that there's something more glorious. You might have thought that Moses' glory was radiant so much that you couldn't even look at his face. There's something more. So in 2 Corinthians 3, if you have your Bibles open, Verse 7 and 8 says, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? I don't know if you, you, you know this, but Moses and the law can only condemn. This is what he's going to say in this next verse, that Jesus is the one who brings righteousness. The law is a ministry of death. You cannot fulfill it. I cannot fulfill it. Now, that's not a problem with the law. The law itself, Romans 7, is holy, righteous, and good. But the law was put in effect to be an intermediary. Galatians 3.24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. So the law can only condemn you, and its glory is so minimal in comparison to that of Jesus. The law condemns, but the glory of the ministry of Jesus is that it brings righteousness, verse 9. So if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? In fact, verse 10, we're going to be told that Moses actually has no glory. You thought those ceremonial washing jars held glory, that that was good and pleasing and honoring? You have no idea. From them will emerge an abundant glory that outstrips any wine you've ever tasted. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Moses' glory faded. Christ's glory lasts. Verse 11, and if what was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory that lasts? 
verses 12 through 15, Paul is going to say that he and we are not like Moses. Moses veiled his face and it created this problem. It dulled the minds of the Israelites and it veiled their hearts from actually knowing God. Let's look at it. Verse 12 through 15. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Their minds were made dull. To this day, that same veil remains. When the old covenant it is read, it's, it's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. There's only one way to remove the veil. It's verse 16, to turn to the Lord Jesus. When you turn to him, that veil that covers your hearts and the dullness of mind is lifted. And you're in verse 17, given the spirit. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It's not only freedom from the performance of the law and the condemnation of the law. It's also freedom from a dulled mind and a veiled heart that can't know God as we ought to know him. In verse 18, we're told this is no fading glory. In fact, it's not even a constant glory. It is an ever-increasing glory. Verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do I get this ever-increasing glory? Verse 16, I turn to the Lord. If you are still under the ministry of death, of law, of guilt, and shame, would you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? Behold his glory. Receive him. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts by giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The very thing Moses longed to see, the face of God, but couldn't because he would die. We have been given the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We now gaze upon the face of God fully and freely as we gaze upon Jesus. Now that'll preach. We could stop there. But let me bring us to a point of application. How are we doing at this Church of the Lamb? How are we doing at gazing upon the glory of Christ freely and fully? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. We are giving a privilege, but I would say a responsibility to reflect the Lord's glory. It's a strange word. Some of you, your Bibles may be translating it to contemplate the Lord's glory. Uh, This word reflect or contemplate in verse 18 is a strange word. It only shows up once in all of scripture. It's here. When a word only shows up once, it becomes tricky to know how to translate it. You're trying to figure out how is it used in other texts in its day, if it's not used in the scriptures this way. Well, here's what the word literally means. In the Greek, 
It literally means to behold as in a mirror. So the text would read like this. And we who with unveiled faces all behold as in a mirror, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. So you can see the difficulty in translating it because when I look in a mirror, I'm looking at myself. And yet I'm supposed to be beholding somebody else as in a mirror. So I think the best way for us to perhaps conceive of this is that we are to look upon Christ as though I was beholding myself, or to gaze upon him in the way that we would gaze upon ourselves. And ladies, I've seen some of the mirrors you use to gaze upon yourself. Now, I might be single and unmarried, but I grew up with a sister. And she had this mirror in our shared bathroom that must have been developed by NASA scientists to look into the depths of space. Because I've, I would get up on that thing and it would just like explode my face into great detail. And my sister would sit for 20 minutes in front of that thing. She must have known every aspect of her face. That level of gazing, that level of scrutiny, that level of knowing the glory of Jesus Christ is our privilege. It's our responsibility. What we call having a quiet time or a devotional life that we, we do, we take up the book of John and we read the stories of Christ so that we could see his glory. Significant, important, must do it. We pray, we meditate, but we don't just do these things to get it done or to learn something or just to be faithful. The purpose of us pursuing Christ in this way to quote the now 100-year-old hymn, is to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, so that the things of earth, now, this isn't escapist, this isn't so the things of the earth would grow strangely dim and, and we're worthless here, it's just to say we need to put them in their place and see that our, our cares about our finances and the burdens of our calendars and the responsibilities of work and the care for our children, that the things that burden us, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let me pray for us. Lord, might we be a people who with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of Jesus and in so doing be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.